HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is proudly supported by LMT, the hospitality industry's preferred source for tabletop and more. Learn more at lmtprovisions.com. This week on Meet and 3, meet four of our HRN Hall of Fame inductees. These prolific individuals are writers who have changed the way we talk about food. We'll take a look at the journeys that shaped their literary voices. I was heading off into the unknown to spend my junior year of college in Paris. We'll explore the culinary landscape they work within. You know, it was that whole self-made American idea that you, you can just kind of create a new world from scratch, including a new way of eating. And look at the transformative effect that their work has on what we eat and where it comes from. It gets down to management deciding that humane handling is important. You've got to have management that cares. And if management doesn't care, then you're going to have a bunch of bad stuff. You can learn more about HRN's 10th Anniversary Hall of Fame at heritageradionetwork.org slash hall of fame. And don't forget to subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we are coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, August 7th, 2019. This is the 224th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a top hospitality lawyer, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to seek advice when you need it. Because let's face it, even the most well-rounded people don't know everything. It's simply not realistic to be an expert in all fields. Sure, it is possible to figure things out for yourself, but sometimes getting guidance from a trusted, specialized source is the smartest move you can make. So let go of your ego and be okay with asking for help, as knowing what you don't know is knowledge. That's my tip today. Now, I'm thrilled to have my guest here with me in the studio. It is Jasmine Moy. Hello. 
Hello. <laughs> Jasmine is a transactional business attorney and consultant specializing in the hospitality industry. While she advises many clients on business structure and drafts and negotiates all forms of business contracts, Jasmine's specialty is in the formation and negotiation of the agreements required for a successful food and beverage operation, whether as a standalone restaurant or in the mixed use of a hotel space. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Um... I'm thrilled to talk with you. I was thinking back of um, the business of the business, uh, which was Phil Calicchio's show here on Heritage Radio. Sure. And I believe, um, maybe we met before that, but I saw you regularly here um, as, as, as someone on that show. Yeah. You know, the, the funny part is that um, uh, I didn't know Phil but he needed a guest for his 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 show, and so he we were introduced by by someone, and I was doing a lot of freelance food writing at the time. So he essentially was like, "Hey, be my guest, talk about food writing." Um, but then I also told him, "Hey, I'm also a lawyer, and I'm you know not that thrilled with my job." And and uh, he hired me, so I ended up working with him. But it started with an interview uh, on his podcast here at Roberta's. Wow. Well, it's, yeah, it ties together. And, yeah. and um, when I first started doing my show, he had his shows on After Mine. So every week I saw him and then um, he, he's, he's, he's not doing his show anymore. But um, it was, I looked back, I think he stopped in 2016. And, but it was like we had that overlap and yeah. we have that connection. So um, Let's go back, though, even further and start start with a bit of your childhood or your your uh, where you went to school. And, and did you set out to be an attorney? Uh, no, it's 100 percent not. <laughs> um, I, I think I, I'm not alone in saying, oh, I just decided to go to law school to buy myself more time. Uh, I'm, I'm originally from a Chicago suburb, a western Chicago suburb, and Went to law school as like an arts management major, which is a lot of sort of nonprofit administration, working in theater companies and dance companies and things like that. Um, and I loved the arts, but I thought, ah, oh, you know, I don't really know. I would like to maybe make a little more money in my life. You know, I grew up in a single parent household. We never had any. And I was like, I think I would like to prioritize money a little bit <laughs> more than that. Um, so, you know, I sort of took the LSAT and thought, if I do well, I'll go. Uh, and I did. I did. Well, and so I went. Um, but even then, you know, I have no lawyers in my family. I didn't necessarily know what it was like to be a lawyer. Um, went to law school, enjoyed law school. But uh, being in law school has nothing to do with being a lawyer. I mean, it's like they're so separate. They're so independent of each other that it's very strange. Um, so I went to law school, but then didn't really know what kind of law I wanted to practice and ended up practicing in corporate litigation, mostly because it was the only job I could get. It was sort of a rough rough year for lawyers or many more lawyers graduating from law school than there were jobs available for lawyers. Uh, so I took this job doing corporate litigation, but it was, you know, backbreaking. Yeah. It was 120 hours a week. Here working, in New York? Yeah. Working yeah. for huge, you know, huge firms who were representing huge companies that did, you know, terrible things. Pharmaceutical companies whose drugs killed people, um, you know, made off related banking, you know, folks. And, um, so yeah, I just was really burned out. And that's when I started food writing. And as we already said, you know, I was food writing, met Phil, started working with Phil. So I, I really got into the hospitality legal part of this. Um, 
I guess it was like seven, seven years ago, maybe eight years ago, seven years ago. Uh, with and, and then I worked with Phil for several years. And then uh, I, I decided to go out on my own eventually. So, yeah, well, one comment I want to make, my father is an attorney. Yeah. And so I, I had that influence in the, my, in, you know, growing up, it didn't make me want to become an attorney myself. <laughs> However, I do think I got my entrepreneurial spirit a bit from my father because he, he's always, he's worked for himself for, yeah. for since I was a kid. So, yeah. um, but uh, the other part I wanted to um, touch on was the food writing. Like, did you, what ins- uh, what led you to start to do that? Were you just into food or as I, a side hobby? Yeah, I, I was. You know, I had an English minor. I've always liked writing. And, um, you know, honestly, was just looking for something to do that I enjoyed. I was spending so much time at work, uh, you know, in this soul-sucking job. And I was looking for something that, a hobby that I enjoyed and, I've worked in restaurants my whole life. I've always loved eating out. I've loved being in restaurants. I've always loved the energy that a, a, a great restaurant has. Um, I'm not a very good cook, but waiting tables is as close mm-hmm. as you get to like feeding people, you know, is recommending people, getting them meals and making them happy. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I was just eating out a lot. And when you eat out a lot, you can see trends. You notice certain weird new vegetables, certain meats, uh, you know, certain tinctures, you know, when chartreuse was coming back, you notice, oh, chartreuse is having this renaissance. And all you have to do to be a food writer is like have an idea and then send somebody an email saying, I have an idea. I mean, it's, it's not... And be a good writer. <laughs> or a yeah. decent writer. You know, I have to say, you know, if, if all you're doing is pitching, like, trend pieces, you know, this you don't have to be Hemingway for that. You know, it's 200 words, 300 words. It's not a huge commitment. You can't be a terrible writer, but you don't have to be a, a, a beautiful writer right. either. Um, so, you know, a lot of people who like it and are, you know, maybe middle middle level writers can probably still get a lot of work um so long as they're a little industrious uh you know and and want to put the effort in and have have good ideas so you know I started doing that um and it was it was fun but you know wasn't I wasn't going to make enough money to quit my job for I was still trying to pay off law school so that was you know doing that full-time was not really an option for me right but it's interesting to me that you didn't have the like the food writing isn't what sparked the hey I could be a food hospitality attorney. It was meeting Phil and getting into that job, and 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 then all of a sudden you're like, wait, I can specialize in this industry, and this is more interesting to me. Well, so I mean, it sort of worked. I mean, I had initially emailed him because I had decided okay. that that's maybe what I wanted to do. Okay. So I emailed yeah. him to say, hey, I would love to talk about it. And he said, oh, what are you doing tomorrow? Come on my come on my podcast. <laughs> so it happened really fast. You know, I, yeah. I did reach out to him saying, I'm, I'm, I think I'm interested okay. in switching lines of work. Um, would be really interested to know if you needed any help and, and what that, you know, what our relationship might look like if you did. And um, so, yeah, I did reach out to him first knowing that he was doing something got it, that I got wanted it. to be okay, doing. Okay, yeah, I get it. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, so then who, what were some, who were some of your initial clients and what type of um, lawyer stuff were you doing for them? <laughs> well, sure. I mean, you know, the, the benefit of coming into Phil's practice is that he had, you know, a small firm and had a ton of his own clients. And basically I came in and was just doing all of the work that he didn't want to do or didn't have time to do. Um, so, you know, immediately I was doing work for folks like 
um, you know, Scott Conant and Michael Schwartz down in Miami and uh, Kevin Zabraga in Philly and um, Floyd Cardoz uh, here in New York. You know, Phil had a lot yeah. of, of, of... Nice of, list. Yeah. And, um, you know, I worked with Phil for several years, but over time, you know, the reality is a lot of Phil's clients were folks who worked with Tom um, at Kraft, Marco Canora among them, things like that. Um, but through my writing, I had met a lot of sommeliers and other chefs and, you know, people who were like GMs at restaurants who were thinking about opening their own restaurants. I mean, I was meeting a lot of adjacent people Mm -hmm. and they were younger and they couldn't necessarily afford a fill and I was cheaper. I was younger. I had a, you know, a lower hourly billable rate. And uh, so I started sort of building my own client base out of, you know, from people who I knew or people who knew people who knew me, you know, so... You know, one of my very first clients was uh, Isaac and Amanda Toops down in New Orleans who owned Toops Meadery and Toops South. He was about to be on Top Chef and needed someone to negotiate his Top Chef his his contract with the Top Chef production company, um, but most of my clients are you know referred to me from from existing clients or from friends of mine who who have folks. But you know I, I built up this whole client base. I had like forty or fifty clients of my own, and eventually you start realizing, oh, it'd be nice to be able to keep one hundred percent of the th- you know the the billable time that I'm putting into my work. Um, and there's a point at which I decided I could sustain myself if I went out on my own. And when was that? That was like about four years ago, three three to four years ago. And are you loving being an entrepreneur and on your own? Yes, yes, but with a caveat. I mean, right, it's, it's great to set my own schedule. It's great to choose my own clients. It's great to be able to say no to people who I don't like. You know, I, I, I choose. <laughs> I get to choose, and you probably know that, well, right? As- as someone who works for himself, yeah. yes, like you get you get to choose. It's a or, luxury yeah. to not have to work with people who you don't act, actively like. Um, it's a luxury to be able to set your own schedule. Uh, you know, I can choose to like go to yoga at eleven in the morning and don't have to tell anybody that I'm doing it or, right. or whatnot. Um, on the flip side, I am my own bookkeeper, my own debt collector, my own marketing manager, you know, my own press agent. I mean, I'm my own everything. And sometimes it's hard. And you, you know, you I can you relate to relate yes, to that. Yes. Yeah, I, I actually finally, as a, as a thing, like a mental health thing, a gift to myself is that I hired a remote assistant to help me with my billing and like matching up all my expense receipts with my expenses and um, and things like that, and it's it was they were sort of like pesky things that that needed to be done, but that I hated doing and always dragged my feet to do. So I actually hired someone to do it, uh, and that was a gift to myself, and it is life changing. So if you don't have someone helping you do some of that admin, I would highly recommend. <laughs> yes, I hear you loud and clear. <laughs> I I've I've been a very uh, do it yourself. It's easier to do yourself type of mentality mm-hmm. person and I keep trying to get over that <laughs> because um yeah and Your that time I, is better spent doing other things perhaps yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and even my tip with you know getting help when you need it knowing what you don't know I mean uh, you know a lot of this is things that 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 come into my life or other people's lives and I think they're just they're good tips to know like mm-hmm. we don't we can get help and and we don't have to do it all ourselves yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm saying this out loud so like someone you're internalizing yeah. yes yes <laughs> sharing with the world my feelings um and on that note let's take a little break and we're going to come back and we'll talk more with Jasmine so stay with us this is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network 
This episode is proudly supported by LMT, the hospitality industry's preferred partner for sourcing tabletop supplies. From their New York City headquarters, LMT provides expertise and uniquely curated products for restaurants and hotels nationwide. Whether it's dinnerware, glassware, and cutlery, to smallwares and equipment, LMT's approach to tasteful design and product knowledge is simply unmatched. Learn more at lmtprovisions.com and listen to founder Morgan Tucker on episode four of Opening Soon on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Jasmine Moy. She is a hospitality lawyer. She works for herself. She Let's talk about some of your clients. Are, are, they, are they mostly New York-based? Or well, you mentioned Toops. That's New Orleans. Yeah. You know, they're really all over. Yeah. Um, much of the work that I do is contract work. So it's a chef who's partnering with a hotel or it's a chef who's partnering with a a commercial brand, you know, all clad or, or, you know, sur la table or something. Um, and that work can really be done anywhere for any clients. Uh, you know, it's the, the, my strength as an attorney there is really understanding how best to protect the chef, um, knowing what that chef is worth, how much that chef should be doing that job for, um, or conversely when a chef should turn down a gig because it's just, they're not paying, they're not being paid for enough for the work that they're being asked to do. Um, the work that I can't do, but I do have clients all across the country, and that's the kind of work that I'm doing for them. The work that I cannot do for pe- people who are out of state are um, real estate work. I can't do any commercial lease work for people who are outside of New York without hiring a local attorney to basically review my work um, because I'm only barred. I'm only licensed in New York State. Um I, you know, I don't do labor and employment work, but that is very specific state to state. So, you know, it, it's great that I can take work all over the place, but it's only because, you know, contracts are very unique and contract law is such that whatever two people agree to, provided that it's not something illegal, is something that will be upheld. So there are not a lot of, um, you know, state to state laws that regulate how two people can contract with each other. And also, you know, you've got a chef in New Orleans who's maybe looking to do, you know, work in a hotel in Charleston, you know, maybe the people who own that hotel live in Florida and the company who's managing that hotel is based out of Chicago. You know, everything is amorphous. Everybody's sort of all over. So where I'm located, where my clients are located for that kind of work um, doesn't really matter so much. But I do have clients all over the country. Yeah. And do you do you work a lot with the um, I don't know, with with me and being a, a restaurant publicist primarily and seeing new restaurants opening? And I know there's so many so many licenses and things you have to get to get mm-hmm. to get your feet off the ground. Are you are you do you play a major role with that too with a lot of your clients? Or do you do a lot of new openings or is it? I do a lot of new openings, but insofar as in New York, I will help them with their lease. Um, but I don't do liquor, um, liquor licensing. Liquor yeah, liquor licenses are are. Um, 
they're the kind of thing that I learned sort of early that if you really want to make money on them, you have to do a lot of them at the same time. And I did, I just had decided very early on because I was part of the community board up in my neighborhood in Washington Heights for a long time. I said, you know, these community board meetings are not fun. They're not particularly <laughs> enjoyable. Everybody just fights with each other. They're like really hostile. You know, they happen several nights a week. They're four or five hours long. You're there till one in the morning. And I was like, nope. If I have the choice, I'm going to avoid doing all of that. So I very consciously chose to not do the the liquor licensing work. But a lot of the permitting and liquor licensing goes together. Um, But, you know, but frankly, a lot of the other licensing that they need are are things that they do on their own. You know, making sure that their kitchen is DOH compliant, making sure everybody's got their food handling um, and whatnot. Anything that has to do with the Department of Buildings you know, as it relates to how they want to build their restaurant, that's something that their architect will handle or an expediter will handle. So mostly my role is in negotiating the lease with the landlord and trying to protect them as much as possible. And then also negotiating their partnership agreement with their investors and and trying to make that relationship as, as copacetic as possible between all the parties. Very important services. <laughs> very important. Yeah. yeah very important. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's, let's play back my questions from my last episode because I had on, this is episode 223, and I had on Sean Feeney, the co-owner of Lilia and Missy Restaurants in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and I also had on Jeff Gordonaire, food and drinks editor at Esquire and the author of Hungry the Book. So, and they both asked great questions. So let's first uh, play back Sean's question. So here it is. I think... um Having a council that is specific to the hospitality industry is extremely important for any restaurant owner, operator, employee. Um, I would ask over the past two years, what has been the biggest change in her role for restaurants? I will ask. Um, you know, that's actually a really good question. And I think first and foremost, the the change is that, and I, you know, I think part of this is maybe a little specific to New York, but it's very difficult to open a restaurant in New York. Yes. Um, for various reasons. And I think over the last couple of years, a lot of my clients who are like named chefs, chefy chefs with Michelin stars, beard awards. I think over the last two years, there's been a real, um, you know, sort of exodus from the idea that opening your own restaurant is something that they have to do or want to be doing. So I think the vast majority of them have moved into consulting work, corporate work, um, hotel work, work where they actually have sort of larger partners, supported partners, and they're not having to bear the weight of the like the full cost and the full risks of opening um, your own restaurants. So, and, and also, you know, conveniently, I think in the hotel space in particular, um, and I talk about this a lot, but a lot of hotel owners and managers, operators, are putting a priority on, on, on putting really good restaurants in their hotels. Mm-hmm. You know, it used to be you'd go to a hotel, you know, there'd be some some lame, generic something, all-day cafe. The food was junk, and you went there if you had to. Um, now you've got a lot of really excellent restaurants and hotels, and that's something that, you know, very few brands were doing, but now many, many more brands are doing. Um, so it's, it's certainly a lot more hotel work or even in um, 
you know, a big residential building. Somebody was putting a lot of money into a residential building and they say, oh, you know, maybe this building is in a neighborhood that's a little up and coming. We are afraid nobody's going to come to live in this building unless there is a great grocery, an amazing coffee shop and a really good restaurant nearby. So you've got a lot of mixed use development, you know, developers who are putting money into building nice restaurants and I think chefs are sort of gravitating towards that because they don't have to raise all that money somebody else pays for it and it's really nice when somebody else pays for it right yeah that makes sense and certainly I I, I remember how many I don't know how many years ago but when you started to see these that great restaurants were being brought in or being developed in hotels mm-hmm. because yeah back in the day it was it was not hotel restaurants weren't as as known as being like destination restaurants yeah it's a real so, revenue driver yeah. I think I think hotel owners have have realized that that's a lot of untapped potential for them to to make money in a way that they used to just rely on their room rate for right. yeah cool okay second question from Jeff Gordonaire I would ask from the vantage point of uh, theoretically I am a young chef I'm just starting out what are my blind spots? What am I missing? What are questions I am not asking because I'm not even aware that those questions exist? That would be hugely helpful to a lot of young chefs I see coming up who sometimes are, you know, getting elbowed out by the owners or there's, there's, there are crises that, that arise because they weren't anticipating them. So I think that would be hugely helpful. Yeah, that's, I think, really the the, the most important thing is is understanding the risks and and trade-offs of your agreement with your partners. I think it's really important. And I think a lot of times when a, a talent, a chef, will partner with someone who has a lot of money, maybe the person who has that money is like driving, the, you know, steering the ship. Oh, I've got a lawyer. We've drawn up these documents. Here, just sign. And, you know, anybody who does that is making a really critical mistake because that document very likely doesn't give that chef very much control, maybe doesn't give them very many rights, um, doesn't give them the freedom to be who they are and to be really utilizing what their talents are. Um, or it's giving, you know, the investor the right to veto certain things that are really in the chef's purview, that are the chef's expertise. And that's when those, you know, relationships start going down the tubes, right? But so all of this is really about communication and transparency with your partners. Um, so it's not, it's not enough to just say, here's what I expect. What do you expect? It's about getting it down on paper. And then to the extent that the, you know, the chef talent is partnering with somebody who has money, it's about the chef talent saying, here are the things that I'm asking for. I'm asking to have complete control over what this menu looks like. However, what I will agree to is to maintain certain food cost thresholds, for example, so that the person who's investing all the money understands that the chef can be doing whatever the chef wants so long as the chef is not recklessly spending money or recklessly wasting money, you know, so long as they're being conservative about spending somebody else's money. So it's, it's about trying to find sort of that, um, that relationship with each other. But, you, you know, it's about having the conversation, being transparent, sitting down and having sort of come to Jesus moments about what happens if you stop getting along and, and planning in advance for that, um, and it's, you know, it's a big deal. And that's, you know, all the, the fights you see that go to litigation, people in court, so-and-so is suing so-and-so. We don't know who's going to get to keep the restaurant. 
all of that is stuff that you should have talked about and should have decided and should have agreed to before you even opened. And to the extent that you didn't, you're in for like a world of hurt if God forbid things don't go so well two years down the road, three years down the road. Or yeah. God forbid you get kicked out of, you know, your own restaurant or a restaurant that you thought was yours. Or that has your name on yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or that. <laughs> that that to me has been, or that. I think those are the ugliest ones, at least from the outside looking in. For sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a really, it's a critical mistake to put your name on something if you don't have control over it at the end of the day. Yeah, it's critical. But a lot of chefs are creative people. They're not thinking about these details. So it's, you know, it's about, I think, letting them know what the risks are and then letting them try to 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 factor some of that risk out in advance before you get too far in any relationship with someone. Yeah, that's great. They were great questions and great answers. What what advice, uh, someone opening a restaurant beyond what we've covered here, they want to be a restaurateur and, and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're here to, to give them some advice. What would you say, what, what would be your number one tip? Like make sure you have an attorney. <laughs> Probably, yes, make sure you have an attorney. But I also think that um, maybe just as important as having a good attorney is really doing all of the planning. You know, really think about it, really have a vision, um, you know, be committed to the vision, but also be flexible about how you get it done. You know, never fall in love with the space. If you're looking at spaces, trying to sign a lease somewhere, never fall in love with the space because you'll make bad decisions, right? You'll say, this space is my space, even if it turns out that, you know, the HVAC is a mess that has to be replaced. You know, the, the gas line isn't nearly big enough for what you need. You know, maybe you didn't even look into whether you could use the patio or the roof or the things like that. Or maybe you can't even get a liquor license there because it's too close to a church or to a school. So it's, you know, it's about doing all of the other due diligence that you need to do. The lawyer can only do so much if you don't do all of the rest of the planning, like careful planning, you know, with a vision involved, but also being flexible about how you, you, you make that dream happen. Yeah. And then once the dream has happened, then you can fall in love with the space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, let's take another break here, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to play my speed round game and talk a little industry news. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest is Jasmine Moy. It is time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Chocolate. Chocolate. Fabulous. That's Mike. That's mine too. Okay. So here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. <laughs> eat out. Obviously. <laughs> Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Wine. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Nine times out of ten, a la carte. <laughs> okay. 
Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? All-inclusive. Single operator restaurants or large restaurant groups? Single operator restaurants. How about writing or I'd say podcasting? (laughs) Writing. (laughs) Are you still writing? Not as much. No, yeah, not as much. (laughs) I wish, you know, I sometimes have ideas for for things, um, but then I think, oh gosh, it takes a lot of time to pitch. Uh, And write. Well, maybe not for you. And to be honest, I can't, you know, there's, I can't really be writing about a lot of food, especially I would never write about a client, you know, there's, there's conflict of interest. So, you know, it would have to be an idea for a trend or something that did not include any of my clients. And so I just haven't. Um, I haven't really, but I, I, I miss it and and I like it and I would like to make more time for it in the future. Yeah. Got it. Makes sense. Okay. Two more cheese plate or dessert. Uh, you know, I'm have like a lot, I love cheese so much, but I have a lactose issue and I'm not that into sugar. So I would say cheese plate if I didn't have okay issues with dairy <laughs> or you just skip it or you get maybe have some fruit <laughs> yeah sometimes i'll like okay. I'll, sometimes for dessert i'll order like the favorite appetizer that i have oh that's that's kind of fun <laughs> last one's manhattan or brooklyn oh brooklyn cool that's the game <laughs> it was fun. I, you know i live in brooklyn now but yeah. but i mean i lived in manhattan for 17 years 15 15 16 years something um so up in Washington Heights for a very, very long time. But I'm in Brooklyn, but I'm like right over the bridge. So I'm still pretty close. <laughs> and you like it. I love it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I've been in Manhattan since I've moved here. So I don't, mm. I don't know. I don't know if I'm ever going to leave, but you never know. You never know. <laughs> okay. So industry news. Uh, this story broke last week and have, we just have to talk about it. Uh, the article I picked out was in the New York Times, the... It was entitled, The Owners of Eleven Madison Park Are Ending Their Partnership. Will Guadera and Daniel Holm, whose restaurant group includes the world-famous Manhattan Destination, are splitting up in a divorce for the industry. And this was by Kim Severson. So this is really big news in our industry because everyone knows Will and Daniel and and, uh, with the EMP and their whole restaurant group – Super successful, super, super tight partnership from when they bought um, EMP from Danny Meyer back in 2011. And um, yeah, it says New York's most powerful restaurant marriage has come to an end. What was your, what's your take on this? I mean, to me, that's like illustrative, right? Even the person who is like your best friend um, it doesn't mean it's always going to last. It just doesn't. I mean, it's it's no different from any romantic relationship. So there's always a possibility that you will decide that working together is not the thing that you want to do anymore. And um, that's what makes it really, really important to have a really good operating agreement. Because if you are not getting along, um, the, you know, this is the same way in a, in a romantic divorce. If you're not getting along, you're not going to be wanting to make the concessions that you need to make with each other in order to separate 
you know, quote unquote, amicably. Um, so, you know, either they had a, a really good agreement or they still are getting along enough to be having civilized conversations about how to, sep- how to separate, but it's a big deal, right? They have very many assets. They've got several restaurants. Um, you know, they've got several management contracts. They've got all the nomads are inside Seidel hotels, Seidel owned hotels. So they've got these management contracts with Seidel. I don't exactly know what the ownership structure there is, what their fees are. Um, but, you know, Will's the one who's, who's, who's walking away and they're paying him a lot of money to do it. Uh, so, you know, that was probably, it took probably a long time to negotiate what that price was. Yeah, I guess I should have asked you, uh, and I, I'm assuming now not, that you're not on either side of this. I am or not. negotiating any yeah. contracts with I'm them. not. Okay. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> I would obviously be <laughs> a, a lot more passed, <laughs> You probably would have passed on talking about this. Um, but yeah, 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 D- uh, Daniel is, is buying out is buying out Will, yeah. and it is it is huge. And Will, it says Will is going to start his own restaurant group. Um, from from the this article, and the I've heard some articles. interesting rumors about what Will's doing next. I oh, can't really? say. Yeah, I'm not going to say it, but I heard some very interesting rumors. Okay, I can't wait to hear one later. <laughs> um, <laughs> offline, but uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I I got the impression from, and I you know I know them, we know them. Um, that the split seems amicable and that they're they're just taking yeah different directions or at least they're you know um Elise's articles came out that way yeah the rumor the rumor mill is something else I mean the food industry is very insular um, yeah I've heard a variety of things but obviously okay. as a PR professional you understand that the foot you put forward has to be a you know your best looking ones. So even if they hated each other and were no longer speaking, they right. would never admit that to anybody. Um, you know, well, you'd have to know their friends in order to know that. So right. Well, the PR speak or the it's been it's been I guess you say like politically correct or sure, something. Sure. Um, and I you know I'm 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 I wish them both the best and and see it will be interesting to see the changes if you know what happens and and what 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 you know with the restaurants that that will is is taking over or or, or that daniel's Mm -hmm. taking over and what will does next um they've been super successful and they're yeah so this was this was big news um stay tuned for what what's to come maybe i'll be talking it about it on my show down the road (laughs) <laughs> Probably, oh, maybe. I will be talking about this on my show, I assume. But, you know, as, as a restaurant attorney, you know, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for all of the conversations that they yeah. needed to have to facilitate that, ex- you know, that exit. It was, you know. Yeah, because they also have tough. new projects that have been announced, new mm-hmm. restaurants. It was something on, on Park Avenue and, yeah. you know. Some of, them are, some of those are canceled now, you yeah. know, things like that. Yeah, it was a lot of conversations with a lot of different people to unravel you know that that partnership really interesting really difficult but really interesting yeah yeah and as you mentioned the Seidel group I work with uh Eric Bruner Yang and Spike Jardie who both have restaurants at the Line Hotel in DC and that's Seidel so um yeah my uh Kristen Kish is a client of mine and she does Austin Austin yeah yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. I haven't been, when I was in Austin, it wasn't built yet. So, mm-hmm. um, but that's cool. She's a client. Yeah. Yeah. She's doing well. You know, she's obviously very yeah. sought after. So she's the client that I have that I get the most sort of cold call emails from saying, hey, what's she doing? Would she be interested in this? Or would she be interested in that? <laughs> um, so yeah, she's she's uh, very sought after. I'm excited for what 
comes next for her. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, Which I might know something about, but I can't, obviously can't talk about yet. But. Oh, yeah. All right. Off the, off the show. <laughs> off the record. Okay. Uh, let's take another break here and we'll come back and uh, we'll do my solo dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week, it's at Rockaway Clam Bar. Here's the rundown. The location, Reese Park Beach Bazaar, Jacob Reese Park, Rockaway Peninsula, Queens, New York City. The concept, a legit clam bar from the folks at Red Hook Lobster Pound. So why'd I go? Because it's summertime and this is summertime eats. My experience. So recently I ventured out to Rockaway and I went to Reese Park Beach and uh, I found this uh, beach bazaar that had a couple of food options and I was there for kind of like a late lunch, early dinner, I guess you'd say. Uh, I ordered up at the counter. I waited for my name to be called. It took about two minutes, if even that long. Uh, and then I sat outside at their picnic tables under an umbrella and I ate. So what did I get? I had a lobster roll with chunks of lobster meat tossed in lemon aioli with arugula. My take? Hit the spot. Very fresh lobster, nice aioli, flavoring, and a nice bun. So the ambiance. So it's really casual. It's an outdoor bazaar at Bay 9 at Reese Park Beach, and there's plenty of picnic tables to sit at, and there's music blasting, and it's a very chill, beachy ambiance. I'd say it's perfect for seafood or lobster lovers. Or I'd also say clam lovers, too. <laughs> Interesting tidbit. So Red Hook Lobster Pound has locations at Smorgasburg, Vanderbilt Food Hall. They have a food truck. Um, in addition to this location, also the original is in Red Hook, and they also have a D.C. location. Personal fun fact. So when I was on the beach and I did a little yoga and I was walking around, but I noticed there's all these horseshoe crabs on the beach and there were even oyster and mussel shells and it was sort of it was like it was almost like the beach has a booyah face I was thinking so you thought it was so interesting there was there was a lot there was a lot of seafood on the beach even though the beach was really nice down there I would recommend it 
I would say the, the cost of, I'm thinking that sounds so weird, but but it's true. There's, there's, there's like seafood on the beach, but it's a nice beach. Okay. The cost was $22, not including tax and gratuity. Uh, would I go back? Yes. I'd probably try like a fried clam roll or something else. Uh, the website is rockawayclambar.com. Have you been down there? Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you know, I, ha- I haven't been to, Jason, to Jacob Reese, but um, I'm I live on the A line, so oh, okay. I take the subway down to Rockaway yeah. all the time and get the you know the fish tacos at the Rockaway Surf right. Club. Go to Rippers, you know, get a you know grilled porgy, a bunch of French fries. They've got like a really good cheese sauce with their French fries, which is not something I would normally order, but um, their cheese sauce is really good. Yeah, Reese. This I I had been to Rockway and I hadn't been down to Reese, and it was it's harder to get down there. But I like yeah, how'd the you beach get there? Did you? I actually Ubered from okay. Rockaway gotcha. because I think there's a bus, but I yeah, it's not. It's My friends who go there, you have cars. Place. Like, they've got kids in cars. And I was like, well, that's nice for you. Like, you can get however you want in your car. <laughs> I was trying to figure out, besides, yeah, how people do yeah. this. And it did seem like that's a destination if you have a car. But it wasn't terrible to take the train out there. And mm-hmm. then it was a quick, it was mm-hmm. a quick, like, under, you know, like, eight-minute ride or yeah, something. sure, sure, sure. So that's how I did it. But if people have tips on how to do it, let me know. <laughs> Okay, so it's time for the final question. So my next guests are food and travel journalist Megan Murphy and New York Champagne Week founder Blaine Ashley. And they are both the co-founders of Loke Rose, which is a limited edition rosé. I guess I say Loke Rosé. So it's a limited edition rosé with a twist of island inspiration. So Jasmine, what would you like to ask Megan and Blaine? You know, not to be too on brand, but from a legal perspective, uh, I guess I just want to know what the hardest part of development was um, from a legal perspective. Uh, I do know that they're, I don't work in retail products and I don't work in alcohol, but very curious to find out, um, you know, what hurdles they had to maybe jump over as far as finding distributors, storage, sale across state lines, labeling, things like that. There are so many legal things involved with that that I don't know anything about. So um, would be curious to find how they dealt with that process, whether that was a, you know, enjoyable or easy process for them, whether it was difficult for them. Great, great <laughs> question. I mean, yes, I'm curious to know the answer too, because I would, I think that's challenging. Yeah, yeah. But, you know. So, and they're doing it. So they're fabulous. I can't, I'm excited to have them on and hear their story. Okay. That went so fast. Um, That's the show. (laughs) Thanks for having me. This was wonderful. Thank you. Congratulations on your career and working for yourself for all the amazing work you do. Same to you. um, Yeah. Thanks. We, we lady business owners have to stick together. We do. (laughs) We do. We're here for each other. Uh, and if I, yeah, yeah, you can, you can help me with a little of the lawyer stuff and I can help you with a little of the PR stuff and yeah, there you go. It's a good, good combo. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So that's the show. As I said, my guest today has been Jasmine Moy. She's a hospitality lawyer. Her website is restaurantlawyer.nyc, which by the way, I think that's very cool that that's your website. Thank you. You know, (laughs) I don't know anything about SEO, you know, search engine optimization, but I have found that I get a lot of random cold call emails from people who I think just Googled restaurant lawyer NYC. So it has been from a business development perspective, 
surprisingly useful. From I just PR wanted it to be memorable. Yeah. yeah, all of it. Marketing. I yeah. think it's yeah, it's great, great. Now, are you on? Are you on Instagram or Twitter? I found your you you're at Jasmine Moy. Yeah, I'm Jasmine okay. Moy at Twitter, and I'm Jasmine Leilani on Instagram. And by the way, I'm a total Instagram lurker. All I do is look at other people's vacations okay. and food photos. I literally never post anything. Don't even know how to use it. Sometimes we'll text someone being like, I don't know how to make a story. <laughs> so I'm like the worst. I'm like an old lady who doesn't know how to use social media when it comes to Instagram. I'm like the worst. But you're on it. <laughs> I find most of my guests are on Instagram, but they're not on Twitter. Yeah. So You know, Twitter's where I get my news now. It's just yeah. like faster. Um, you know, if something really dramatic happens, I get it from Twitter. Yeah, essentially. I do. I do yeah. too. Breaking news all the time. And then I follow a lot of people who just post adorable animals and comedians. So it's nice to have a little bit of lightness in my day when I have time to check my feed. <laughs> Sounds nice. Yeah. I don't do that. But <laughs> it does sound nice. Okay. You can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My website's BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. And all of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Amanda, and thanks again to Jasmine. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with another live show. Hope you'll tune in then, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.